Hi, my name is Titi Mutendi and you are listening to Enterprising Families Podcast. Welcome to the world of Enterprising Families where we discuss the issues of governance, next gen and looking at how families of wealth and family businesses growing into families of wealth can preserve their wealth, become better as they go forward into a new generation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Enterprising Families. And on this edition of Enterprising Families, I have with me Stephen Rosenbaum. And we're going to be speaking about mitigating risk and growth-oriented African family firms. And this is an exciting topic for me because I know that there's a lot of growth and potential that is going on on the African continent. And there are families that are coming from the continent that are expanding outside their countries. And then there are those that are coming from outside the continent coming into uh, into the African continent. So looking at the different risks that we face as we explore these different journeys and as we look at empowering, growing our businesses and becoming better at what we do is the perfect time to start having these conversations is now. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much, Sitsi. Lovely to be here. And can you tell my audience a little bit about you so that they get a bit of a background before we start going into our meaty stuff? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, for a start, I have a PhD uh, in business economics. I'm a professor of economics at uh, different business schools uh, around the world. Um, taught a lot in Africa, actually, over the last uh, 15, 20 years. And um, I also started my own uh, consultancy firm, which uh, is called Distant Shores Consulting Group. And that specializes in helping firms expand uh, their their growth strategies uh, in Africa itself. And um, and basically, I have uh, clients from from all corners of of Africa. And um, the reason that I got in touch with African family firms is is that uh, I actually found that the vast majority of these uh, clients are actually African family firms. I had expected to be helping more European-based firms uh, enter Africa um, with all the growth prospects that are are present in Africa at the moment. But uh, it actually transpired that there were were far more more interest from family firms in Africa looking to to grow uh, across borders. So, um, so yeah, it's a fascinating area, and uh, it's one that I'm very engaged in uh, on a on a daily basis. Incredible! And so, to get started on our topic for today, mitigating risk in growth-oriented African family firms. What types of categories or, or, or of risk do family or f- firms? generally face as they are growing especially outside their borders yeah it's it's a good question because of course the whole uh, process of internationalization increases your your geographical scope Uh, so you have you're operating over much greater uh, geographies and of course also time Um, and these factors can can uh, enhance risks um, so when we talk about different categories of, of risks, um, we do a lot of risk advisory work for, for firms, uh, and they're, they're looking at specific risks involved in their own business model. They're looking at specific risks involved in their, in their companies. 
Um, so what kind of resources do they have? If they're lacking resources, for example, this can also constitute certain types of risks. What kind of ratios are they operating on in terms of financial ratios? Uh, what kind of cash flow do they have, for example? So there's a lot of firm specific uh, risks uh, that are involved. But there's also obviously a lot of systemic risk or risk that applies to everybody uh, operating in, in certain market conditions. Um, so there's risks uh, that we see, for example, associated with, with, with COVID that basically affects everybody. So we, we, we term that systemic risk, or it could be a, a financial crisis, for example, that we also saw back in, in 2008. So um, the, there's uh, also lots of different types of geographical risks because certain countries uh, obviously are are categorized as, as more risky than others uh, in certain dimensions. So the, the issue itself is very, very specific to the firm, the industry that it's operating in, the country that it wants to go into. But also uh, looking at it from a more holistic point of view, uh, its entire supply chain. So uh, we also have to think about, you know, what, what are the risks to, to the firm? Um, that are inherent within the supply chain that it has set up, for example. So there's a lot of sort of contextual issues that we need to take into account when we recommend uh, what type of strategy should be adopted. And when we're thinking about strategies uh, in terms of maximizing growth potential and, and the, the, the market potential in Africa, we have to obviously offset that against the, the risks that are inherent in that particular strategy. But in terms of types of risk, um, if, you, if you read the, the literature and you look at, at consulting firms and political risk advisory firms, there are largely uh, seven types of, of risk. And of course, they're all interrelated. So it's very difficult to put a boundary around one and, and say that we can contain that in some way or mitigate that in some way. They spill over into each other and, and they're highly uh, interrelated. But the first type of risk would be operational risk. And, um, and this is simply, um, it, it's made up of, of lots of different dimensions. Um, but these are largely human failures within uh, companies. Um, this could be, of course, issues such as, such as theft, um, but it could also be uh, people just failing to do their jobs properly, people forgetting to switch off machines or, or whatever it might be. Um, there's also the, the actions of third parties. So whenever we uh, engage in partnership strategies, whether that's upstream with suppliers or, or downstream with, with vendors, we also have certain risks associated with that. Are they going to be able to supply on time? Are they supplying to the, the uh, quality that's desired, for example? Um, we also look at uh, ICT issues. So uh, IT disruption, uh, problems with data, uh, there could be um, utilities such as power outages. Um, there could be uh, supply chain disruptions. Uh, we talk a lot about COVID and how that, uh, how that meant that, that firms had to reconfigure their supply chains because certain countries were just closed down. Um, so this is something which is very top of mind at the moment for, for most business leaders. Um, infrastructure deficits. 
So how difficult it is to operate, to control supply chains when the infrastructure is, is very poor or deteriorating or problematic at certain times of year, uh, for example. Um, and there could also be failures of, of business processes. So there's, there's lots of, of different categories of operational risk. And then uh, secondly, we talk about market risk, and, and that's also um, called economic risk, it's sometimes called financial risks. And, uh, and these are simply the risks that you, uh, you go into a particular market. So you're from country A and you wanna go into country B and you simply underestimate the demand potential or you fail to uh, spot the trend, uh, trends that are changing, for example, changing preferences, which simply means that by the time you get onto the market, you, you simply find that your, your turnover is, is significantly lower than you had forecast. Um, there can, of course, be lots of macroeconomic issues. Um, inflation, uh, of course, is, is one of them. So if you're operating in, a, in another country, inflation is putting up uh, the costs of your inputs, for example. Um, it could mean that you have to revise your pricing structure very, very regularly, even on a daily basis for, for many people. Um, recessions, of course. Uh, there could be issues with, with capital controls that are being imposed by, by countries to try to uh, preserve foreign exchange uh, supplies um, or reserves. Um, there could be rising debt uh, GDP ratios. One of the things we, we've noticed with the, the monetary easing and the very cheap money strategy that we've had around the world now for, for around 12 years is that the markets have been flooded with cash and people have been borrowing at extremely low rates of interest. This, of course, encourages people to borrow more than, than is actually prudent and, and increases the, the ratio of government debt to, to GDP. Um, this is, of course, important because it, it means that a lot of the borrowing then becomes unsustainable. Um, there's also bank failures, uh, for example. This could be another aspect of, of market risk that you uh, maybe lose the financial support that you thought you could count on. Um, the third category is, is what we call strategic risk. Um, and this is the risk that you simply go into a market, maybe underestimate the competitive intensity of a market. Uh, it could be that you find that your core competencies can't quite be leveraged across borders as you thought, or the knowledge advantage that you thought you had uh, maybe doesn't materialize, uh, and you find you're, you're simply outcompeted. Um, but there's also strategic risks associated with, with launching new products, uh, going into new countries, um, engaging in acquisitions, for example. And um, the fourth type of risk uh, we, we tend to refer to is called compliance risk. And um, compliance is, is basically the, the need to comply with, with changing regulations. And, uh, and this happens in, in some countries uh, more rapidly and more extensively than, than with others. But if you're failing to uh, adjust to the new norms, uh, the new compliance norms, then you can risk, of course, uh, legal penalties, you can risk financial losses. Um, so this is a, an area that firms have to in, invest a lot of, of time resources in, in governance and, and risk compliance, what, what firms call uh, GRC. 
And um, and then actually, interestingly, the the most prominent risk that that most business leaders refer to is reputational risk, and uh, and this is simply. Uh, what what people refer to as as the loss of reputational capital. So firms have a reputation in a certain market, uh, a good reputation, a solid reputation that's been built up uh, over decades, over generations. And then suddenly uh, you find that there's a damage to your reputation. This could be, uh, as we saw with with Tesla yesterday, for example, the fact that there's recalls of their their models in China. There have been various accidents on the roads in the US with with security vehicles. And what this has meant uh, is that Tesla's reputation has taken a a knock. Uh, Its share price fell 4% uh, yesterday morning in, in trading. Um, And these are the kind of issues that firms have very, very little control of now. And uh, and why is that the case? Well, it's the case because, of course, we are global. Information travels very, very quickly. And reputations can be very quickly and severely damaged by, for example, social media uh, activists uh, and so on and so forth. And um, then we have the, the category of risk, which is called political risk. Um, And here we talk about political instability. Uh, We talk about it could be civil wars. It could be incursions across borders. Uh, It could be the risks associated with having lots of different ethnicities within the country, which, which of course is not bad in itself, but it can lead to lots of different types of infighting between different groups uh, that cause you know, an inability for governments to pursue uh, political reforms or economic reforms, for example, favoritism uh, within societies. And, uh, and of course, corruption is a very large political risk that uh, we, we, uh, we talk quite a lot about. Uh, and then finally, I, I would have currency risk here as well. Uh, some people include this within uh, economic or market risk, but here the risk of, of strong and sudden uh, currency devaluations. Uh, There could be foreign exchange shortages, for example. Uh, And there could also be, of course, macroeconomic instability, very high levels of inflation, for example, or uh, low levels of of, uh, interest rates that suddenly lead to some form of currency flight. Uh, And this, of course, is is particularly prominent in uh, emerging markets, such as many of the African countries, which have received large uh, inflows of of capital in search of high returns. Um, And then suddenly uh, we find that if the US puts their rate of interest up, for example, um, then, then people start moving money out of emerging markets very, very quickly. And you have this sudden capital flight uh, that puts pressure on uh, exchange rates. And in, in many cases, exchange rates just sort of collapse. Um, so you have a high degree of, of exchange rate volatility uh, associated with, with many emerging market currencies, uh, and especially African countries uh, that we've seen, because there is, a, in, in a way, an over-reliance on commodities uh, that characterizes many African countries. Uh, and this means that they're very vulnerable to sudden collapses in commodity prices. So, uh, and these are these, of course, are, are major factors. I, I, I remember I was I was teaching in in Zambia a few years ago in the in the copper belt, and uh, copper was valued at four thousand U.S. dollars per per cubic meter, 
And then a, a year later, it was a thousand US dollars per cubic meter. Um, so we see uh, really sudden and dramatic uh, changes to commodity prices. And, and when we think that copper um, constitutes 80% of um, Zambia's GDP and an even higher level of its exports, then you can see a collapsing price like this has, has really strong adverse ramifications for its exchange rate, the, the, the quacha, which, which just collapses. And, and that, of course, creates all kinds of other risks in itself, because then, of course, you have to use up your foreign exchange reserves, you have to put up your, your rate of interest, you have to impose capital controls, um, which, of course, you know, all of these factors impose huge costs on, on doing business in that particular area. Yes, thank you for that. Um, I think you managed to explore quite a number of risks that got me thinking. So I was listening intently and um, also looking at um, my own personal risk exposure as a family business owner. And from these risks, what do you, how many of these risks do you think um, are specifically um, risks that affect African family businesses or businesses within the African context? context yeah it's a it's a very good question of course um well many of these uh if we uh, if we start from from with with currency risks for example as as we've talked about there there have been lots of currency crises in in africa uh, just recently with the ghanaian uh, cd for example we've had the nigerian naira uh, South African rand has also been uh, badly affected in, in, in recent times. Um, and this, of course, as a, as a business creates lots of problems because when, you're, when your exchange rate falls, then you get much more inflation in the economy itself because everything that you're importing and many African countries have very, very high levels of imports uh, as a proportion of their GDP. Everything you're importing becomes more expensive. So if you're a small producer of, of products in, in Africa and, uh, and suddenly your exchange rate collapses, then um, it becomes very, very difficult for you to manage input prices. So everything becomes more expensive. Um, you then have to pay more wages also. So you have wage uh, pull inflation, you have cost push inflation, uh, and it basically becomes very, very difficult to sustainably uh, produce from an economic perspective. Uh, because your costs just go out of the out of the window, and um, and this means, of course, it's very difficult for you to to compete uh, with uh, with competitors in in lower uh, inflation economies. And um, we often talk about strong currencies as being a really positive factor, uh, and it and it is in terms of inflation. But if you've got a currency which is going up, this this also creates many problems for smaller family firms because. Um, if you take a, if you take the oil price, for example, which is which is currently sixty six uh, US dollars a barrel, that was twenty uh, US dollars a barrel just about a year ago. Uh, so that's gone up quite quite uh, dramatically. Um, what that does, of course, is uh, you know it's if if you've got increased oil prices and you've got economies which are very dependent on oil uh, as as an export uh, good 
then this of course puts your uh, exchange rate up. So uh, exporting uh, oil exporting countries like Nigeria, for example, when the oil price goes up, then the Naira goes up accordingly uh, because it constitutes such a large percentage of their, of their export earnings. Now, when that happens, when the currency goes up, then it, in a way it penalizes all the non-oil exporters within Nigeria. So if you're a little, uh, a small farmer, for example, that, that is growing uh, mangoes for the export market, if, if the Naira appreciates dramatically, then uh, it simply means that you get priced out of foreign markets as well. Your products become so much more expensive in foreign markets. So there is uh, both um, advantages and disadvantages associated with currency movements. But when they're very volatile and then when they're very sudden, it places enormous pressure on, on companies. I, um, I'm dealing with a family firm in uh, in a country that has a very, very high level of inflation. Um, and, uh, and that is uh, Sudan. And um, the level of inflation at the moment in, in Sudan is 197%. Um, and um, what this means in practice is, is this particular uh, firm needs to uh, revise its pricing structures uh, sometimes several times a week. Uh, this is, makes it really, really difficult, you know, to try and manage uh, strategies, to try and manage pricing strategies. Um, how do you price goods? How, do, how does this affect your margins, for example? Um, so many of these macroeconomic factors uh, have a huge bearing on uh, the ability of firms to, to operate in these, uh, in these societies. And when you have very high levels of inflation also, uh, your own your own Zimbabwe is is approaching hundred percent, and South Sudan forty percent, for example. When you have these high levels, then the rates of interest usually have to go up uh, correspondingly. So, uh, if you take, for example, the rate of interest in uh, in places like. Uh, Zimbabwe, it's around 40% at the moment. This, of course, makes it very, very difficult to do business. It's, it, there's a huge cost on, on borrowing money. Um, and this, of course, means that the firms are more reluctant to, to grow as much as they would, would do otherwise. Mm. Um, so many of these factors are, are in a way, uh, related to, to Africa uh, in the sense that you know, as, as containing so many uh, emerging markets, uh, there is a, a lot of volatility in the market when, when you get these uh, strong shocks to the economy, for example. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, as I was mentioning in the, um, the webinar on Monday, I, I'm enormously bullish on, on Africa. I'm enormously positive on the, uh, about the, the opportunities in Africa. And I've been helping companies uh, realize these opportunities for, for a couple of decades now. Um, but um, but there, are, there are lots of risks that need to be taken into account and, and it, recalls, it, it calls for very prudent management uh, of them. Um, mm -hmm. I think what, what I've noticed with the firms that I've been talking to is that they're beginning to get very, very interested with uh, international growth opportunities. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a little bit like the share market, you know, you see 
actually shares starting to go up. Now we've, we've got a bull, we've had a bull market for many, many years. Shares are starting to go up, uh, largely because there's not much point in putting money in the bank at the moment. There's, there's no rate of interest. So people are investing in shares. But there's always a point psychologically when you feel, okay, now I really should be starting to buy a share. And, mm. and it's a little bit like many of these uh, companies that I'm, I'm talking to. They're feeling that now's the time to start to harness some of these uh, opportunities that are, are available on the African continent. So many are now beginning to, to think about, well, what kind of processes should they use to internationalize? Um, but, uh, you know, at, at the same time, um, there are so many opportunities that you really have to be careful to, to choose the right ones, the ones that are gonna give the most return because one of the characteristics of family firms is that a lot of the capital is, is family capital. It's, mm. it's family injected capital. There's a reluctance to take on uh, debt from, uh, from banks, for example. So people tend to grow, firms tend to grow very organically. Um, there's, there's also, a, a, you know, that there's not, that many uh, African family firms that are going into mergers and acquisitions, for example, it tends to be more organic growth. So it's a slow, prudent, careful growth um, across the continent. Many are thinking of regional strategies, first of, of all, and this makes good sense. So if you're in the Horn of Africa, then thinking, well, which markets within that area are the best to go into, or, or Southern Africa, which ones in that region are the best to go into? Uh, and trying to keep focus there. Um, mm. Again, there's certain risks associated with that because, you know, Southern Africa has a certain climate. It, it has certain geographical risks, certain climatic risks, uh, for example, um, that you don't have in, in, in West Africa. So um, a lot of the strategies that firms are thinking about now is, is, is how can you, um, how can you diversify as much as possible um, but still trying to get control over many of these risks. Mm -hmm. So the more you internationalize, the more you diversify, the more you grow, by definition, the more exposed you are to certain risks. So it's very difficult if you're, if you're mining uh, something in uh, Angola or, or uh, Congo or wherever, uh, and, and you're a farm from, from Kenya, then it's often very difficult to try to monitor everything that's going on in these, uh, in these countries. And this mm. exposes you to reputational risks. It exposes you to compliance risks. So is, are your suppliers, are your supply chain partners uh, living up to the same kind of, of values and standards that you set for yourself? Um, it's not always so easy to, to monitor that. Um, but at the same time, we know that, you know, uh, bad stories get, get told very, very quickly. Uh, and you, you can risk that your, your reputational capital takes a hit um, if, if you're doing something um, that is not quite uh, as ethical as you would otherwise like to do because of, uh, of a third party, for example. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for joining me today on Enterprising Families and sharing with us and giving us a deeper look at um, the things that we tend to take for granted and overlook, especially more so when you are building and expanding your businesses. And with the globalization of the world as we know it, it's inevitable that we're going to have to grow and expand. And, and as the last um, final word on, on this conversation, 
What actions can family firms take to mitigate risks associated with expansion, both globally and internationally? Yeah, um, so again, um, a very good question, uh, because what we also have to think of is in the context of family firms, um, you know, uh, a lot of there's there's typically not so many external people involved. Uh, There's sometimes skill shortages. Um, We also know that uh, many African firms are, are, are a little bit risk averse. Um, so we have to bear in the, the context in mind a little bit when we think about what kind of strategies can be enacted, uh, because some of them are more costly uh, than, than others, for example, some are more uh, comprehensive than others. Mm-hmm. But in terms of operational risks, for example, what a lot of people are doing are diversifying uh, across suppliers. So uh, something that we call strategic sourcing. So you try to get suppliers from different regions, for example, um, different sizes uh, of supplier, so that if if one of them dries up for a a reason or or, uh, the port closes or, uh, you know, there are, are operational issues with the supplier, that you have other people that you can rely on. So it's a very good idea Uh, to think about how do we diversify a little bit? Uh, How can we find several suppliers that can help us dilute uh, geographical risks? In terms of market, well, this is, is of course, harder because, you know, a lot of this is systemic. You can't control inflation rates or capital controls or debt levels, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what many firms are looking at now is a portfolio approach. So can we go into, into different countries uh, maybe that have different types of, of risk. Mm. Um, can we accelerate profit repatriation in some way so we bring money back as quickly as we can rather than having it uh, sitting in a, in, in a host country? Is there some way we can structure our exports so that the buyers pay more of the costs, uh, for example, upfront or what else, or bear the risks rather than the seller buying the, uh, bearing the risks? And uh, and I talk a lot about cherry picking. So which are the ideal countries, which are the the star performers in different regions that are often the ones to go into first and then build a a strategy around that. So a lot of firms are choosing uh, countries that are not necessarily the big uh, kind of very prominent countries to go into, but but smaller ones, ones that have very reform oriented, that have got good institutions, for example and establishing a base there and using that as a regional base to go into neighboring countries rather than often go into the big countries like Kenya or Nigeria or South Africa, for example, where Mm -hmm. you can risk that uh, there's so much uh, competitive intensity that you're going to be priced out of the market. So is there some way you can go under the radar a little bit? We have a lot of strategies uh, for that. Uh, In terms of the strategic risk, yeah, can you be very careful with your entry modes? Can you use an entry mode such as exporting, indirect exporting modes like piggybacking, which allow you to come into property rights, for example? In terms of compliance, well, this is uh, better due diligence. So who are you using as suppliers? Who are you using as partners? Uh, Can you try to, to get some kind of organizational culture that is open to improving um, and and uh, a, a culture of openness, for example. Um, and is there some way you can go in and, and try to, to monitor potential conflicts of interest that could cause 
um, financial penalties, legal penalties, for example. Um, in terms of reputational, well, this is also very interesting because lots of companies now are spending lots more time on building brands uh, to try to withstand any damage to reputation, uh, engaging with local communities, uh, stakeholders, for example. Uh, lots of, of Western firms, anyway, are entering uh, Africa with alliances with, with local firms and especially uh, local NGOs, for example, to, to get much more legitimacy on the market. And also using social media uh, strategies to manage uh, their reputation. Um, and a lot of this dialogue actually is, is with activists. So uh, seeing activists as a, as a positive force rather than a negative force and embracing them in a way, um, and then trying to, to uh, align uh, your interests with, with the interests of, of uh, activists. Um, in terms of political risk, um, I would say definitely getting political risk advisory. So getting uh, outsourcing to, to third parties or having a trusted advisor who can advise you almost on a daily basis what's happening in a particular country, in a particular region, particular industry that you're in, uh, that allows you to make uh, the right kind of decisions. And, uh, and of course, in terms of currency risk, the last type of risk, then there are uh, obviously strategies such as hedging uh, futures contracts, for example, that allow you to uh, reduce the risks associated with more, with more volatile currencies. So there are there are lots of types of strategies that firms can use. Uh, again, they're very firm specific, they're very uh, industry specific, very country specific. Uh, but these are often the things that we're sitting down and, and talking with firms about because if you can if you can mitigate these risks, then all of a sudden the returns of going international become so much more compelling. Once again, thank you so much, Stephen. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I think there's so many families that are going to get so many, so much value from, from this conversation. I am going to put your details at uh, the bottom and the show notes. So anybody who wants to get hold of Stephen or wants to find out more about the work that he's doing or how he can assist them, you can just look at the show notes and you will find his contact details um, as well as his bio at the bottom of um of the podcast. Thank you so much once again, Stephen. Thank you, Sitsi. It's always a pleasure. So take care.